Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning uh, to almost everyone. Um, maybe those of you in the UK and Europe this afternoon. It's certainly early morning here. And it's, um, it's wonderful to be here. I love um, looking into the Zendo and uh, seeing people um, sitting. So this is a, a wonderful opportunity and I'm so pleased to be here uh, with you. So I want to begin with gratitude for everybody in attendance, for your willingness to be present today and for your ongoing dedicated practice on all the days into that you show up. And I want to acknowledge everyone, as I did both in Austin and elsewhere around the world, who keeps this flame of practice burning like the candle on the altar, encouraging and supporting uh, everyone with the true spirit of practice of apamata, of mindful, diligent care. And I could go around as I see the little squares and thank so many people. Um, and so I won't really start because there are too many, except I will say two. And one, um, is of course Peg, who if I was sitting in the Zendo, I would be sitting in the perspective kind of where the camera is in the Zendo, and she would be sitting right next to me in the old days when we would give talks. So I wanna just acknowledge her uh, because it's heartening and I feel grateful for all that we created together. And also just one other person, I want to uh, acknowledge Cassie because I need to apologize to her. The image, the photograph that I used in the email that I sent out was her photograph and I didn't acknowledge it. And she's done so much to record and reflect what's happened in Appamata for two decades. Uh, throughout her whole history, she's an amazing gift. So I just wanted to make sure she was acknowledged. So our <clears throat> our perspective. <laughs> this is one of those days where I say buckle your seatbelts uh, because I know I've prepared too much, but I always assume it's my only shot. So I give you everything I can. You, you know, at Appamata in most centers, we have a beginner's orientation where um, new people can come and they can learn the forms and kind of how to comport themselves in the Zendo and what all these strange sounds are and things like that. So this is the orientation. Imagine that this talk is experienced students reorientation. So this is like an orientation session, only it's for people who have practiced for a good long while. So <clears throat> if you'll accept my apology for everything that I'm gonna offer, because it's a little bit of a ride, um, just hang in there 
please don't try to remember everything like you got to hold it just follow the energy and the spirit as it's moving through me and see where it takes you um, you know i i do offer a brief talk you know almost every week at alpamana through inquiry um and so when i signed up for this one to do the regular sunday morning talk because i guess it's kind of unusual or unexpected i i got all this uh, feedback from people maybe it's the timing or maybe it's the topic seemed to get people's attention um and maybe it's because people were like reading between the lines from the few things that i said something you know something's up or maybe something's wrong but really i just had a feeling that a number of people were struggling in various ways and i wanted to do something for this community that i love and in the bargain remind all of you to offer yourselves as best you can to this community if you love it too and then there's a, a suzuki roshi statement came to mind many of you know the, the the famous picture on the back of zen mind beginner's mind you know it has that one eyebrow it's a very wonderful picture but i think it's like a wry kind of hmm, he's blinking you know when he said to his students you're perfect just like you are and you could use a little improvement <laughs> you know this very famous statement well i would not use improvement i would say you're perfect just like you are and it's important sometimes to get a little nudge or a reminder our practice in this community is such a precious gift and sometimes we all need some encouragement especially after a really rough patch like the pandemic which has kind of scattered us but also brought us together in this larger online community so i'm here with my gratitude and with my concern inspired by your practice and hoping to offer some encouragement and if i might humbly say maybe a little inspiration i hope and there's a little caveat i also want to add those of you who are not in austin but who are part of this larger apamata community which has blossomed um, i'm going to be speaking as if i were sitting in the zendo in austin to the austin students but as all dharma offerings are it's of course it's meant for everybody i just wanted you to uh, be alert to the the voice i'm going to be speaking from which is different than inquiry which is more more global but the teachings are for everyone everybody's included and the teachings are totally universal um, i'm just using a little bit different voice so i want to weave three threads together um, in the tapestry of the talk um, this is for those of you that like take notes you know um, this is like your gps <laughs> well you know when you put a map in it says like there's three things you know three, here's the here's the gps i'm going to talk about foundations spirit of ongoing practice and zazen foundations the deep sources from which apamata has grown and so we're going to start with some homages and dedications spirit of ongoing practice i'm going to use one of suzuki roshi's favorite words constancy and the energy and vitality of steady practice 
And three, zazen, the center of our practice, our essential, sort of non-negotiable, at the heart of, of our lineage, the Soto Zen, our essential teaching in our daily practice. So foundations, spirit, zazen, okay? So here we go. <clears throat> and all of this really, in a way, is just a warm reminder of the vision uh, that we hold. And so we're going to start with uh, foundations. Now, after this talk, in fact, it was announced a while ago, um, those of you in the Zendo are going to participate in the usual Sunday service. And I suppose some of you online will, will join as, as you usually do. But I'm going to start with two things that are sometimes done in a temple service, which we don't usually do. And I'll describe why I'm doing this and bringing it today, because it's really important. <clears throat> and the first one is it's important to remember really where our practice came from and how this life-altering gift of our practice, where it comes, how it comes to us. And so in a classical temple environment, you might begin a ceremony with homages to our lineage. And this is not going to be a visual presentation, but I'm going to show you these lists because they're, um, most of you aren't familiar with them. Uh, so it's just um, a little something here in the, in the beginning. <clears throat> um, pardon my... <clears throat> Just shifting here. There we go. So here's the first one. <clears throat> so in the beginning of a ceremony, <clears throat> pardon me, we might offer homages. This is the short one. <clears throat> and we might chant. You wouldn't just read it. We'd be saying homage to the seven Buddhas before Buddha. Amish to Shakyamuni Buddha, and you go down to Maitreya, Manjushri, the Bodhisattvas. So this is an homage to all the Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha, homage to the Buddha of our time, homage to the future Buddha, Maitreya, those are the Buddhas, then homage to Manjushri Bodhisattva, which is the Bodhisattva of wisdom, Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, which is the Bodhisattva of um, a strong practice of activity, and Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, which is the Bodhisattva of compassion. And then homage to all the succession of ancestors. Here's how I'd like for you to think about it. <clears throat> homage to the seven Buddhas before Buddha. In other words, honoring everyone who's practiced on our behalf. Homage to, we're going to honor our own Buddha nature. I want to make this personal. Homage to the future Buddha. This is honoring the unfolding awakening that we all share. Homage to Manjushri, honoring the innate wisdom that we share. Samantabhadra, honoring the great activity of our shared practice. Homage to Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, honoring the immense compassion that we reflect and homage to the succession of ancestors. That's the unending line of dedicated practitioners. That's us. 
that this is what we dedicate, uh, we honor, excuse me, we're, these homages to what has brought us here. But it's personal. That's why I give you the sort of descriptors on the side. That's not usually part of the chant. And then at other times, after we do part of service, we'll do uh, dedications. And there's another list. So these are the only things I'm going to show you. It's the other side. This is the past. <clears throat> and these are the archetypal energies which have held the practice for 2,500 years. But the other face of this is the dedication to our teachers. And we usually chant our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, and chant all through. Our first woman ancestor, Mahapajapati, who was the Buddha's stepmother and who was the first woman to be ordained. Our first ancestor in China who brought the teachings from India, the great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan who brought the teachings uh, from China, Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor who came to the United States in this lineage at least, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. Our compassionate elder and founder, great teacher Charlotte Jokobek, and the companion, um, compassionate founder and elder, great teacher Zenke Blanche Hartman. So these are the, um, the people, not just the archetypal energies, but the actual people who are vowed to embody this practice so it could be transmitted to us. So. I just wanted you to have those lists and to see it, since it's, are there things that you're unfamiliar with, most of you, and might not have, might not have seen before. So once again, the names of the bodhisattvas to whom we pay homage represent these foundational archetypal energies, and they remind us that we're supported and are actively joining all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas every time we sit together like this. This is real, it's not some strange idea, this is amazing. You might notice the energy in your body as you think about chanting those names. And the names of the very human ancestors to which we dedicate the merit, those are the people who have vowed to embody these energies, like we have. And through their dedicated practice, they've brought the practice to us, so we have this opportunity. Their gift inspires our practice. And this is what Suzuki Roshi called constancy. Steady, embodied, energetic practice, no matter what the situation. And maybe you can feel a little bit of that spirit this morning as we reflect on this. And you know you can learn about all these archetypal figures. We study them, and you hear the biographies of these historical people. Um, <clears throat> when we we practice, we look. You know, Zen is an embodied ceremonial practice, conveyed through our forms, which then form us, and and mostly in un, unseen ways. We can't really tell it's happening as we're doing it, but this only happens if we engage the forms with vitality and devotion. Our roots are esoteric, like those energies, and they're ordinary, like these people. They're sublime and they're mundane, 
and to leave out either side is misunderstanding our way. The archetypal energies and the constancy of practice of our ancestors holds the center, which is the title of my talk. This is what I'd like to talk about. We are held by the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas throughout space and time, and our job, our responsibility in turn, is to maintain the expression of this unbroken practice in the world and for each other, for all beings. This is holding the center. Okay, so that's the foundation. That was, that was the first thread that I wanted to make sure we talked about, how we hold the center, and I wanted it to be very explicit. So now, <clears throat> pardon me, the spirit of practice. When I uh, began to put down some ideas and think about the talk, a line came to me, maybe some of you also, that's a famous line from, from poetry. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Some of you know this line. It's, it's from a poem uh, entitled The Second Coming, which was written by the Irish poet uh, William Butler Yeats. It was written in um, 1919. And the first draft of the poem, I, I was studying a little bit, it was uh, called The Second Birth. But he ended up favoring uh, primarily Christian imagery um, in, the, in the poem, in which he's describing really the atmosphere of post-World War I Europe and the beginning of the Irish War of Independence that same year. So he was trying to describe what had happened to the world. And curiously, more personally, I didn't realize this, that the poem was also about the, the great influenza pandemic of 1918 and 19. Just in the weeks before Yeats wrote this poem, his pregnant wife, Georgie Hyde Lees, caught the virus. She got the flu and was very close to death. And in that particular pandemic, the highest rates of death were among pregnant women. In some areas, up to 70% of pregnant women died with their children. So while his wife was thankfully convalescing, and in this environment, in the carnage after World War I, he wrote this poem. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. There's more. It doesn't matter. But you can, it's, it's oddly uh, current, isn't it? And the question is, what's our second coming? What is our second birth? What comes next? We're in so many changing seasons in the world of war and strife and climate and pandemic. And we're also, I think, in a new period of maturing of Apamata. So the foundations of our practice, we all know that everything changes. That's the easy one. Um, you know, how many times do you have to hear about impermanence? Uh, you know, both its uh, creative and its destructive sides, anatta, impermanence, one of the three marks of existence. And we're also, most of us, quite familiar with the teachings on uh, emptiness, that we are um, infinitely intertwined in this 
contingent flow of ever-changing reality, that everything co-arises, we call it um, mutual causality, which I like way better than emptiness, it sounds a little void, and that nothing exists apart from this wholeness, this vibrant, relentless creation and destruction that we call our life. This is Anicca. So anatta, impermanence, anicca, no independently existing self. And number three, we're, we're all quite aware that we will suffer when we resist and struggle with the first two. And most of us understand this enough where we could teach it. But here we are, immersed in our own shared tangles of number three, dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering, fear, anger, unrest, sadness, and on and on. I'm sure you have quite a list. All of us, I'm sure, want to respond in a wholesome and wholehearted way to, um, you know, when we feel this heat of suffering. And so we, we come to practice. But what if your practice begins to turn into a new place of suffering? the actual practice experience, the place of practice, the relationships. You know, we chant, I take refuge in Sangha, bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance. Sometimes when I chant, I'm gonna go, ha, <laughs> bringing harmony to everyone free from hindrance. Oh my God. I um, was, a, a quote was revealed to me the other day from Dogen, which I had not seen. Uh, I'm not gonna go into it long, but listen, listen to this. Dogen said, even when you are clearly correct and others are mistaken, it is harmful to argue and defeat them. On the other hand, if you admit fault when you're right, you're a coward. It's best to step back, neither trying to correct others nor conceding to mistaken views. If you don't react competitively and let go of the conflict, Others will also let go of it without harboring ill will. Above all, this is something you should keep in mind. I'm not sure it's as clear as Dogen has said it, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. And I've heard from many of you some version of a shared concern. Will the center, capital C of Appamata, will the center hold, survive, thrive, flourish? And I've also heard the neighboring question, which is, how do we hold this center of practice as a cohesive, harmonious Sangha? These are the two centers that place in the relationship. But there are other questions that arise in me. These are the ones I kind of hear from other people. First, though, what comes next after the pandemic, when we've been physically separated and scattered for so long can we repopulate uh, the zendo and our our practice with a vibrant kind of energy well guess what it's actually happening look look it's true i have we carry the question but it's true and also remember it's summer 
there's always uh, a dip. Another question is like, how do we hold the center after our founding teachers have stepped back? I just want to name everything. We love and respect our current interested teachers and all the mentors and all the senior students, and we can feel our shared dedication to practice. But no, no single person can do it all. And you're not going to become me and you're not going to become Peg. It's not because we're better. We should just add it for a long time. And everyone is being asked to be themselves. Come forward as yourself. And remember the homages and the dedications? There are, this energy is on your side and there are real people doing it. You know, we all experience things that are really difficult in life. Every single person, if you named everyone, everyone has a story. But there's a question, and this is kind of like from my psychologist side, why do some people carry trauma and others don't when everybody had bad things happen to them? And the answer is not in the severity of the difficulty. Like if really bad things happen, you have trauma, and if sort of bad things happen, you don't. That's not the determining factor. The answer lies in, you know, it's a more complex formula, but for the sake of this talk, I'm going to say it has two basic elements. Difficulties, which we all have, become embodied trauma if you can't talk about it and you can't use your body to respond to it. That's why when you're carrying a lot of difficulties to sit down and be quiet and zazen doesn't do the whole trick. We have to talk about these things and we have to act. And Apamata has a creative and lively body. But it also has a structure, a history, and a scaffolding, and forms which can hold. And an intact body can heal, even from trauma, and grow. And given the right space and the willingness, this body of the Sangha can heal from what might be thought of as a potential trauma. I, I don't mean to be dramatic. It's just that I think in the larger um, universe of uh, practice these days, it's the, the pandemic and some of these other things has been a bit sort of traumatic to people. In the life of every single Sangha, there's always like a next step, maybe an evolutionary turn, uh, a troubling loss, an unwanted challenge, or a surprisingly generous gift, which makes something new possible. All those things have happened at Alpamata. It's the way it goes. This is our Sangha life. And we shouldn't be surprised, but we are. I can remember in the early days uh, when I was training at San Francisco Zen Center, I'm in this place that is quite a, a big center and everything is going along beautifully. And there's a lot of complexity and it's held wonderfully by all the students and the senior teachers and all that. And so it looked to me like, wow, this is fantastic, you know? And then on breaks or we're hanging out with some of the senior students and they go, oh my God, this place. And then they start there about the backstory. It's the way it goes. I might... I think we might heed the uh, old advice, which all of you heard, 
I think we're going to have to practice like our hair is on fire. The energy of the bodhisattvas, which we chanted, and the embodied practices of all those that have been on the ground, the names of our ancestors, these are our foundations. And like the old teachers have said, when you fall down on the ground, you use the ground you fell on to get back up. Appreciate the ground of our practice we have created. Use it to get up. Appreciate the ground of our practice we've created over the years and use it to get up. Reach out a hand and help each other up by offering your energy of practice. Service to the community because this is the ground of our practice care and service. This is how the center holds both of them. <laughs> and this is how we hold the center. And this will keep happening. We all fall, we all get back up. And we're helping each other all the time. So maybe another question is, right now, where is the source of energy in the Sangha now? And how do we fan the embers you know, like down there somewhere to, the, to encourage the flame of practice. Are we embodying constancy in our individual practice and in our community practice? How do we rekindle the spirit of practice if it seems like it's, it's waning? This is one of the reasons I began with the homages, because we're carrying on something amazing and valuable and all of us have to participate in it if it's to stay alive. You can feel it. And you have helped create and sustain it for a long time. It's not something you were given. And if you value its continuation in the ways you know it can be and has been, then you have to enact it. This is why we dedicate the merit to our ancestors, because that's what they did. We dedicate our practice activity to them because they dedicated their lives to enact and embody the practice so we could have it. So what do we do? And what did they do? Well, they showed up, they sat in Zazen, they looked around and noticed what needed to be done, and they encouraged other people by their actions. All of which is super sustaining and encouraging to them. Got to show up, sit zazen, see what needs to be done, and encourage each other. This is constancy. If you if you look in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, there's um, uh, one of the little chapters is on constancy. Here's the, the little paragraph from Suzuki Roshi. He said, and he makes a really important distinction. He said, I've always said that you must be very patient if you want to understand Buddhism. But I've been seeking a better word than patience. I'm always amazed when I read this stuff because like English was a second language and he's trying to figure this out. And I, I say this looking at Claudine, 
you know, I've, this language thing sometimes, I'm always amazed. He said, I've always said that you must be very patient if you want to understand Buddhism. But I've been seeking a better word than patient. The usual translation of the Japanese word nin, N-I-N, is patience. But he said constancy is a better word. You have to kind of force yourself to be patient. But in constancy, there's no particular effort involved. There's only the unchanging ability to accept things as they are. He said, for people who have no idea of emptiness, this ability may appear to be patience, but patience can actually be non-acceptance. I'm going to say more about this. But people who know, even if only intuitively, the state of emptiness always have open the possibility of accepting things as they are. They can appreciate everything and everything they do, even though it may be difficult, they will always be able to dissolve their problems by constancy. So he's basically saying, I think patience can seem like putting up with things. It's got to be patient. But this doesn't have any energy or inspiration in it. In fact, this kind of patience is kind of deadening, like waiting it out. And with that attitude, the way I'm saying it, have you ever felt that during an intensive? It's like, oh my God, it's only day two. You know, or even just in the morning zazen, just waiting it out. Well, there's no inspiration in that. It's who would want to come to practice with that kind of patience? But if we appreciate the energy and dedication the bodhisattvas express and the embodied practices that our ancestors demonstrated, then we begin to get the feeling of constancy through the many changes, the ups and downs of life and community. This is the actual ride. So continue by offering yourself to the next thing. Notice I didn't say do the next thing. Offer yourself to what comes next. Practice is not a burden of endless, lifeless responsibility. And in Sangha, sometimes it's like, oh my God, who's going to, and then you make the list. This is actually the practice of setting down the burden of self-centered preferences and judgments and offering yourself to what's greater and more generous to your vow, which supports our vision for the benefit of everyone. Do you see how that's different? He says that we can dissolve our problems by constancy if we have an appreciation of emptiness. So what I took from it is if, if we truly appreciate our independent nature, that we're in this together, folks, this fullness of life, that our lives depend on each other's efforts, then the problems we inevitably encounter can be met with this kind of spirit. This is the unchanging ability to accept things as they are. 
This is the way it goes. This is the way we create things like councils, um, Zen mentors, much of the structure of Apamata to hold the complex behavior and hold things together with kindness and generosity. Even the Zendo roles, uh, timekeepers, a monitor, everything shows us how everything else depends on everything that we're doing and everyone depends on everybody else. One thing is responding. It's always a responsive function. It's all built into the form. But again, you know, this accepting things as they are, it gets misunderstood. It's not passivity. It's not like, oh, well, just the way it is. I guess I'll accept it. That's not the acceptance we're talking about. Or worse, this is the way it's always been, so this is the way it's going to continue to be. Don't question it. Now, both of these forms are actually passive. And the definition of passivity I'm using here is when we don't actually meet the issue or solve the problem. That's what I mean by passivity. So both of these orientations are strategies that really demonstrate an unwillingness to meet the problem or to solve it. There are refusals to engage the precepts and the messy relationships with each other. The first one, like, uh oh, that's just the way it is. That's withdrawal. And the second one, this is the way we do things, is aggression. One's pulling back, one's pushing out. But neither accepts things as they are, seeing clearly with wisdom and discernment, not with unwholesome patience. And you know, we do have the precepts. That's another piece that we have in place. And we have wonderful um, training programs. And Suzuki Roshi one time has asked if he tried to teach his students the precepts and correct them as they work with the precepts. He said, no, I just watch how they treat each other. So what do we need? What do we notice? And I'm going to, I'm going to offer this, this thing from the anthropologist Anjali's Aryan. Some of you know this quite well, the fourfold way, because I think it's a useful tool in reflecting on this. This is the one where you've heard it. It's a, uh, and she um, pulled this from many, many traditions because she was an anthropologist. She looked at some essentials on the spiritual traditions. And she said, all of them have this fourfold way. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, don't be attached to the outcome. Show up means to show up as best you can as yourself. Either in the Zendo or online, like you're doing now. And actually to show up when you turn up. You know, be there. Engage with energy. This is your generosity when you bring your presence and your energy. This is your gift. We come to offer ourselves, not to get something. Of course, in the bargain, we're going to receive what's actually immeasurable. And this is the true spirit of practice. So show up. Two, pay attention. Means when you do, remain alert and awake especially to all the ways we habitually are, aren't alert or not awake. 
because all of us have these habits. I know I have to remain alert to my automatic patterns of not paying attention, of I'm so easily distracted and I'm daydreaming, I'm analyzing, I'm planning and you know, on and on. I'm sure you have your list. So I have to bring my attention to my breath and each activity I'm engaged in. And when we say pay attention, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? What do we, what's the payment? We pay with our attention. We're paying, we're paying with our attention. That's our payment. Show up, pay attention. Tell the truth. Means to embody the fullness of truth. Not just speak your opinions. Thinking that that's the truth. They may feel true to you, and there is no doubt some truth in them, but remember that line from the Shin Shin Ming. Don't keep searching for the truth, just let go of your opinions. And I might add that our most cherished opinions that we cling to are the ones about our spiritual practice. But to not cling to them means we got to show up and be present, you know, pay attention. And the fourth one, don't be attached to the outcome, means holding things lightly while respecting each relationship, valuing the integrity of the Sangha. Now, this is a real challenge to not hold your own opinions and solutions too tightly. Offer them as possibilities and welcome the offerings of other people. And when in doubt, return to the forms that we've inherited for practice. And remember the basic scaffolding of Avana structure. So, because we've been given guides on how to proceed. There's a map that there that is alive and it's flexible and it's human. And all of this, the showing up, paying attention, telling the truth, not being attached to the outcomes. All of this is the spirit of constancy. Showing up for practice and for each other, paying attention to what's moving in you and your dear Sangha friends, unfolding the truth of each moment as best you can, and including the ongoing difficulties and inevitable confusions and holding it all lightly and provisionally. And, and this sounds strange, holding it all lightly, provisionally, and holding it like your life depends on it. Because it does. And now we've met the paradox. Hold it lightly, hold it like your life depends on it. So we've spoken about the foundations. I've spoken about the spirit of practice. And now we'll go to the center of our practice, which is Zazen. This is how we meet the paradox. And there's a classic teaching. Uh, some of you are quite familiar with, I'm sure. It usually comes out of koan practice. <clears throat> and this is the koan. We're talking about a koan, aren't we? The koan of the present moment. And that is the old teaching of great faith, great doubt, and great determination. Great faith. Edith Wharton said, there are two ways of spreading light. To be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. I love that. So you can have faith, you might have faith in your ability to awaken, or you can take actions that reflect that faith, even when you don't feel it. You know, if we all waited to practice until we felt like strong and clear and trusting, 
Nobody was going to be showing up. <laughs> Most of the time, I think we engage the faith we don't feel. And we base our actions, the actions of our practice, not our feelings, as the deepest expression of our aspirations. But students will sometimes say to me, but that doesn't feel sincere. It's like I'm faking it. Our sincerity is expressed and realized through our intention and our actions, not all our constantly changing material states of mind. We so often place our faith in things that are not worthy of our faith, our opinions, our reactions to the people, the emotions that flow from that reactivity, the distortions that start to arise, which used to be our beautiful aspirations, but they start to bend towards grasping or protecting our fear, or acting out in anger. It's not faking it to engage the forms with energy and dedication. Even when you don't understand what they mean, they seem strange or foreign. But if you do so hard, wholeheartedly, this is the fire of practice. Practicing like your hair is on fire. This is devotion. This is, and, and you know, it's contagious. It's like people want to catch fire. People want to catch the fire of that kind of faith. But what comes up inside of it is great doubt, number two. I had a dokusan one time during Rahatsu Sashin with uh, Sojin Rossi. I was in Sashin at the Berkeley Zen Center, and I had a lot of doubt. I'd just come from Japan. I'd been with him and Blanche there, and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and so I went to see him, and I talked about my doubt. And he, he leaned forward a little bit and he said, do you doubt yourself or do you doubt the practice? And I said, well, I, I doubt myself. I don't, I don't doubt the practice. He said, good, then continue the practice. Right alongside your doubt. That's the enactment of faith. Join everybody else. So when in doubt, turn toward the forms of practice, engage them with your wholehearted energy. This kind of doubt is not intellectual. It's not you're trying to sort things out. It's a kind of a, I don't know, which feels more like, mm, I'm not sure. Let's see. I don't know about this. That's like the soft one. And then the strong one is, not me. Are you kidding? Or even worse, not them, really? These are going to arise right next to faith. And also there's the one that's like, who am I to think I have some insight or any bit of wakefulness? Or who am I that I could really help someone else along the, this difficult path? And besides, I don't know who to trust. Or if I should trust these people, or the teacher, or the teachings. I know you felt these things. I have. And if we're practicing wholeheartedly, you're going to meet this stuff. And it usually feels a lot like disappointment, sometimes like anger, sometimes like fear, depending on how you're structured. And this is not a problem unless you cling to it 
and practice it and let it take over. This does not indicate a failure of practice. It means you've gone deeply into practice. Doubt points out all the ways we strive for and negotiate with and chase after something we can never reach by self-effort. So we begin to doubt. Maybe we start to realize that our individual effort, um, the efforts and goals that are held by our small self, like to have it our way, our parts, actually can't accomplish what our larger self feels called toward. Our doubt is appropriate at that level. You actually can't do it, but it can be done. And by the way, it would be better if other, we think it would be better if other people would like act right and not get in my way. But if we have faith, we can see it all through together and find the real freedom that constancy offers. This is like Katagiri's famous line, rest the self on the self and let the flower of your life force bloom. He's talking about great faith and great doubt. And then the third one, great determination, I don't really like determination so much. I, I like to call it great activity. Determination sounds a little... So the spirit of great activity is practicing like your hair is on fire. That's the determination part. I, I remember a moment, this sounds so ordinary, but it was really profound for me. I was When I was in Japan at Rinsuen, and everybody's quite busy, um, and I was walking across the Buddha Hall and I thought, well, let's see, what's the next thing that uh, I should do with joy rather than thinking about myself? Now, this is a lot of work. I don't... It was a real surprise that I'd somehow forgotten to think about myself so much and noticed the environment I was in, how I could take care of it. That's great activity. And then relationally, there's a story I once heard about Soen Roshi, who some of you know of. A student came to him and said, I'm so discouraged. What do I do? He said, encourage others. And this is the faith, you know. The word sadha, Sanskrit, that's usually translated as faith. One definition is to place the heart upon. And... Uh, Kim, maybe you heard this, but I, I found this story of a rabbi who told his students, he said, pray well and sincerely, placing your prayers on your heart. And his student asked him, what do you mean? Why should we place our prayers on our hearts instead of in our hearts? And he said, you place them on your heart so that when your heart breaks, their prayers will fall in. And this is what happens on the path of practice, and this is where a lot of us are finding ourselves right now. Our hearts will break over and over. And my experience is that my heart begins to be more awake, or at least wants to be awake. And then it shatters, and then it comes together again over and over and over as long as I practice with constancy.
But because our hearts are so resilient, especially through sustained practice, and with the cultivation of good friends, it can actually hold all these movements, these fluctuations of the mind and body, all the times we don't want to deal, the times we're overwhelmed, or we feel like we're falling short, those times when we say we're going to do something and then we don't, and the moments when we're caught in shame or anger or fear, pummeled by the waves of sadness or grief, the days when we dislike everyone around us and ourselves. Our hearts can really hold all our beautiful faith and all of our anguished doubt together. And because our hearts are alive and they're beating through the activity of shared practice, we don't have to stay frozen in that kind of doubt. Because constancy, the great activity, holds and manifests great faith and great doubt in this dynamic balance. The firm resolution to follow our vows and not give up until we and our friends, all beings, are free. And so Zazen is the practice we bring to bear on all of this, the one non-negotiable in our practice. I say sometimes, you know, how simple are you willing to let things be? And I'm not being simplistic. I'm not suggesting that, oh, let's dumb down this practice in some way. It's more a reminder not to complicate this essential center of practice and not to pile on top of it extra things that are unnecessary. But if you want to try all those other things, knock yourself out. Try them until you realize their limit in a wholesome way and determine for yourself that they're not actually the way. So what do I mean? Zazen is a ceremony of expression and celebration of one's nature, Buddha nature, not an instrumental activity for achievement or change. Zazen is a ceremony of expressing ourselves and celebrating what we are, not an instrumental activity for achievement or change. It's simple and it's a profound turn if you get what I'm talking about. I don't know how to say this strongly enough. To truly understand what Zazen is, what Dogen and the other ancestors, the names we chanted, have tried to convey, this is a life-altering turn and a glorious opportunity to shift from lack, I'm going to meditate to get something, to wholeness. I'm going to express this miracle of my life. And we shift from fear to love. We sit by assuming a dignified, upright posture, alert, expressive, receptive, ready. Because we're enacting our innate wakefulness with our body and every single breath. This is the enactment of faith. What if you couldn't wait to get into the zendo, to sit, because you're going to get to express your perfection and celebrate its great light? That may sound crazy, but that's what you're doing. Sitting is an amazing opportunity to meet everything that arises with the same energy as those Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Meeting everything with curiosity and a willingness to accept what is. So we pay homage to that energy when we sit. 
our sitting itself is paying homage. Sitting is honoring all of our teachers who perform this ceremony over and over and over as an expression of their devotion to awakening and to each other. And we dedicate the merit of our practice every time we sit. And sitting is the embodiment of constancy, the embodiment of faith, the container for doubt, and the expression of Buddha activity using your body in support of other bodies. This is an amazing, exciting, and potentially satisfying opportunity. It's not waiting for something. And it's not drudgery. It's not striving for something. And this is not a burden. These are the things that the ceremony of Zazen holds. Because these are the things we bring with us to the cushion if we appreciate the reality of Zazen, if we make this life-changing turn. Zazen is your chance to go over the palace wall with the young Siddhartha Gautama and see the truth of what it means to have a full life. And it will alter your way you experience the pains and joys which will manifest in your body as you sit, because you feel them. You feel old age, at least I do. Illness and death are right there. And you will also be enacting with your body the holy sage that Gautama also met. And now, believe it or not, you're one of them. So sit like one. Zazen is your willingness to sit under the Bodhi tree, right next to the Buddha. Just like you're sitting right next to your friends now or online. And awaken with all beings. The Buddha's story is not some historical story about some guy in India back then. It is your life. And paying attention helps you notice it. Zazen is essentially saying, by your steady upright sitting, directly to Mara, you know, the tempter, as you experience all that's arising that feels anything, nothing like awakening, you're saying by your sitting what the Buddha said. I see you, Mara. Steady, willing. But your wakeful nature is untouched, even as you're assailed by everything that comes. Your upright sitting celebrates that reality. Zazen is touching the ground with your whole sitting body. Just like the newly awakened Buddha did with his hand when confronted by Mara. Mara said, who do you think you are? Imagining you could be awake. And you and I say with our silent, upright posture when we're resting on the ground, the same thing the Buddha said. The earth is my witness. And every time you sit, you're both bearing witness and you're being the witness to this basic awareness, this wakeful nature, your big, big mind. The awareness you're always immersed in, but like a fish in the water or like a bird in the sky, you may not notice it. This is where you live. And sitting it is an opportunity to notice and celebrate that fact. Zazen is the simple act of expressing and celebrating your wholeness and the exquisite 
indescribable glory of her humanness and all of its misshapen and struggling beauty. And Zazen is a miraculously mysterious and really ordinary activity. It's an opportunity to shine and illuminate the entire space and every relationship around you. Everything we do in the Zendo, from the time we take our shoes off on the porch to the time we leave, our entry, our approach to our seat, our bows, our settling, our posture, our breath, our chants, everything we do in the Zendo and everything we do with each other is preparation for and an encouragement and nourishment and a celebration for the ceremony of Zazen, everything we do. So, I know I'm over time here, if you'll bear with me. Right at the end, please honor where we've come from these past 10 or 15 years. Pay homage by showing up to practice and encouraging each other. And it's not an exaggeration to say that all over the world, people cherish what we've created here. It's really true. Dedicate your practice to each other. Make it personal, intimate. People want to be touched and inspired by your practice. Be kind and joyful because they're looking to you to reflect the light they long to see and which will illuminate their lives in ways they can't even imagine. Please be that candle offering light, but also the mirror, as Edith Wharton described, for, for reflecting the light that comes from them. Keep emitting a positive vision of the future. My friend DeWitt Jones, you know, he talks about celebrating what's right with the world. And he said, this is not a Pollyanna attitude. Through the gratitude and beauty and constancy, we're nourished so we can manage what doesn't feel like what's right, what's good. And it gets us through those times of strife and doubt. Our bodies are like tuning forks. When you walk into the Zendo with upright energy and dignity, enjoy, not rigidity, people's bodies respond. When you chant with energy and joy, others join you and they feel the meaning that's beyond the words. Chant with your whole body, not because it's holy, but because it expresses confidence and joy and possibility. When you engage each form, like bowing or each Zendo job fully, our bodies begin to resonate with yours and you resonate with them just the way when you ring the bell, it continues to vibrate. Even the striker's done its action, but it keeps on going. The sound continues and spreads out into the world. And so does your effort and commitment to practice. You are always making a difference. There's no way not to. No one's incidental. So pay attention to the difference, the impact that you're making. Everyone and everything you do is consequential. Everything matters. Offer what you want. Don't wait for it to come to you. 
So wisdom and compassion are easy to hear about and hard to manifest. Thank you very much for hanging in there with me. All of this matters so much, and I know I've given you too much. Please forgive me.